0: This morning's message is entitled, The Last Enemy. If you know your Bible, I could have just probably entitled the message, Death. That's what the last enemy is. Um, we have, in our, in our family, in our church family, experienced our fair share of it this year. Um, most recently with the passing of Della's brother and Pastor Tucker. And it, along with the death of my grandfather earlier this year, as maybe think long and hard again about this and we don't we don't talk about it it's one of those things that we do reserve for funerals I don't know why that is I think we need to be prepared as God's people for that inevitable thing that's going to happen to us and so today as, as morbid as the title sounds I hope that you will find hope in Christ as we talk about these things. Let's add God's blessing on our time. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the fact that as we have sang that you are reigning right now on your throne and there is nothing that escapes your control or your sovereignty. I pray in this uh, time this morning, Lord, that you will bless us as your people and help us to understand this last enemy and the fact that (laughs) We are powerless against it, and that we need a champion. We thank you for the fact that Christ is that champion, and we ask now that you be with us as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27. In this small phrase, we as Christians find both an unsettling and comforting truth. First, we remember that we are mortal, and a time remains for each of us when we will face our last enemy alone. No one helps us with dealing with our own death. No one can say, don't worry, I've done this before, I'll help you. Each one of us has an unavoidable expiration date, we also must grapple with the unsettling truth that we don't have a clue as to when that date will occur. Yet as unsettling as these truths are, there is some very great comfort in this verse. For the Christian, death is merely the exit from one place and the entrance into another. And the moving from this place to the next is much preferred. Nothing here on earth can compare with being in heaven with Christ. And you know, believing that, of course, is a matter of faith. Not only is our own death assured, but also the deaths of everyone we have ever known. Except for Enoch and Elijah, all people die. From unborn children to centenarians. Even Methuselah, who is the oldest recorded man to have ever lived, 962 years old, almost a millennia, but he still died. And while the people of the world count themselves as lucky when others pass away instead of themselves, Christians take no comfort in this at all. All of us, Christian and unbeliever alike, experience a great sense of loss when someone we love passes away. Ultimately, depending on our relationship and their relationship with Christ, one of two things is true. Either we will see them again, or we will never see them again. And sometimes it is the latter truth that causes us so much grief. Death is not natural. We were designed to live It is because of our rebellion against God that we now deal with death. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, Mark 12, verse 27. And when Adam and Eve died, it it wasn't a normal process of their life cycle. They had been made to live forever, and had sin never entered the world, that is exactly what would have happened. Imagine, if you will, Adam and Eve still being alive today. Death is the result of our sin, so before we go blaming God for our cessation of life, let's remember that the responsibility for the existence of death rests squarely on our own shoulders. We don't like talking about this subject, but it is important that we understand this last enemy of our souls, and that we are prepared for our eventual engagement with this ancient foe. Well, what is death? Death is the absence of life. Well, then what is life? That's a good question. Life is difficult to describe apart than using itself to describe itself. We can look at something that is alive and know that it is alive. And we can look at something that is not alive and know it is not alive. But we have difficulty in describing just exactly what life is. Let's look at the creation of Adam. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And later on, when God sends his flood, he describes those that perished in this way. Genesis 7, verse 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. When the widow with whom Elijah was staying, when her son died, his death was described in this manner in 1 Kings 17, verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In Job 12, verse 10 reads, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Now, it is apparent from these texts, as well as others in Scripture, that life comes from the breath of God and departs with the removal of this breath. It should come as no real surprise that God, the author of life, is an active part in maintaining life, and that without him and the breath he provides, there can be no life. Jesus said these things about himself, John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Later in John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Even later in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now some may argue that these texts are merely addressing spiritual or eternal life, which is true. Nonetheless, the important thing to understand here is that life is uniquely a trait of God, which he shares with all living creatures. If he chooses not to share his life with any creature, that creature dies. God not only has the power to do this, but he continues to exercise this power many times every single day. There's more. In scripture, the spirit is described as breath in both the Old and New Testaments. So when a text refers to breath leaving someone, it means that not only did they just stop breathing, but their spirit left them as well. In the Bible, spirit and breath are synonymous. Concerning the Holy Spirit himself, the word spirit, that is part of his name, is again the word breath. He is the hagios Numa, or the holy breath. Every time he is mentioned in the Bible, it's these words. Therefore, if our spirits are synonymous with our breath of life, our very spirits are not our own. They belong to the life breather, God. Understanding these concepts allows us to make some important statements. Number one, our physical bodies, although they may be perfectly healthy, do not live apart from the will of God. And we have certainly found ways in which to kill the body. But I would venture to you to consider Jesus' words about his own life. He said, I lay down my life that I might take it up again, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. John 10, verse 17. This should cause us to think that if Jesus had not relinquished his spirit on the cross, he would not have died. In fact, a Roman scourging, which Jesus did endure, would often be fatal. He survived this as well as carrying his cross, following the scourging, and then, of course, the crucifixion it is only when jesus commits his spirit to the father that his body dies likewise it is god who decides when someone it is to die and we have heard accounts of medical operations accidents and wartime incidents that should have claimed the life of the people involved but somehow miraculously they survived by all accounts what some have gone through should have killed them yet they lived god had determined that they would survive regardless of the circumstances god uses means to accomplish this task he uses trauma immune deficiencies biological events and the eventual wearing down of our bodies due to age to bring about various ailments that eventually take our lives we don't hear too often of people just one moment carrying on a conversation who simply stop living mid-sentence with no apparent reason for their demise. Sometimes the reason for someone's death is hidden for a time, but there is always a reason and God is always the mastermind behind these things. You know, we may reduce the previous statements by saying that God is always in control of the life that we are borrowing from him. His loan of life is going to be returned to him when he deems its term complete. Number two, life cannot be fabricated or replicated by humankind because only God has dominion over life and death. Try as we might, we cannot reproduce life. We can, of course, reproduce, but that child is a new soul and its life is given to it by God, just as any other. Scientists have reduced the simplest single-celled organism down to the chemicals that they are made of. They can reconstitute these chemicals in the right amounts and in the correct configuration as the living pattern that they are studying, but they cannot bring that synthetic organism to life. Life is not the summation of what we are made from. Life is a unique gift from God that cannot come from another source. Again, think of Adam's creation. He was perfectly formed from the earth, but wasn't a living creature until God breathed the breath of life into him. We do seem to understand the finality of death fairly well. Paramedics will perform CPR on someone for a while as long as there's a short time from when their vitals plummeted. But at some point, they will stop that action completely. They do not pause that action only to resume it at a later date. No, if a person has been pronounced dead, they know that there is no bringing them back they are permanently gone our culture is obsessed with preserving and extending life with all of our technology and understanding we are no closer to eliminating death than any previous generation for each advance in medicine we discover another virus or parasite that is unaffected by even our most robust antibiotics Right now, we're terrified by the Zika virus, but that terror will wane and eventually be replaced by another more devastating virus yet to be discovered. You know, the field of cryogenics is expanding. The idea of being frozen and preserved until the life-threatening ailment we have can be properly addressed in the future. All they know so far is that we cannot live once we're thawed, meaning these people died when they were frozen, even if they were frozen in controlled conditions and under the greatest medical care. We are obsessed with preserving this physical life. Truly we are trying to take from God what is rightfully His. The granting of and the removal of life belongs to God alone. And we have the biblical proof as we've read in Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read it again. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out into the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." and you shall live and i will place you in your own land then you shall know that i am the lord i have spoken and i will do it declares the lord what about jesus and lazarus john 11 verse 38 and following says then jesus deeply moved again and came to the tomb it was a cave and a stone lay against it jesus said take away the stone Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. These texts prove that God has complete control over life and death. Now why do we die? Knowing what death is does not explain why. Why does death exist? Why must we die? As mentioned before, death was not a part of the original creation. Sin entered the world after the perfect creation of God. Sin has effects. One of those effects is death. Previous in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine the soul who sins shall die. Genesis 2:16 through 17 and the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." Romans 6:23 For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Plainly, we die because we are sinners. We can reverse this thought to help us understand it better. If death is the result of sin, everyone who sins will die. Tell me, are you going to die someday? If you answered yes... Then you are a sinner. What is a sinner? A sinner is someone who has broken the law of God. We like to justify ourselves by saying, I'm not that bad. Really? God says you are. Have you ever lied before? If you tell me no, you're lying. James 2, 10, 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. God puts to death every rebellious human, no one escapes. Every single one of us are lawbreakers, and therefore we are going to be paid from sin's purse. But well, what about innocent children? Truly, innocent children would never die. Anyone who has been a parent or just been around children in general knows that they are little stinkers. And using the term "little stinker" is a kinder way of calling that sweet, innocent child a sinner. No one has to teach your child to be selfish. We all come out that way. No one has to teach your child to lie. They figure it out on their own. And it's surprising how fast they learn and master the skill. This is just honest observance. But God tells us in his word in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The effects of death are devastating. No normal person likes to think about death. It's unpleasant. Death at its core means separation. A person is separated from life. They are separated from their bodies. They are separated from their family. They are separated from this world. And the effects of this is permanent. Apart from the special working of God, no one has ever come back from the dead. It is not a common occurrence to see people digging themselves out of their graves. No, we expect them to stay there in their graves because that is what the dead do. They do nothing. For those of us left, we experience their missing presence. We are separated. They are no longer at family gatherings. There's an empty chair at the dinner table. Our phones cannot reach them. Our correspondence will go unanswered. Their counsel and companionship is forever gone. You know, over time, the first thing we forget is the sound of their voice. Our mental images fade and we ache. We ache from the loss. They're gone and with them, a part of us is gone as well. We also ache from regret. We wish we had said something to them. We wish we hadn't said something to them. If only I had known they were going to die, what if we know we are all going to die? We should live our lives in this truth. When a Christian dies, those who love them, Christian or not, experience the loss. But we know for certain that they are with God. We do not mourn for them because they are some place that is unpleasant. No, we mourn because of our loss. There is no mourning where they are. Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus said, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? We mourn because we will miss them, and we do not like the separation that we now must endure. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 instructs us not to mourn like those who have no hope. We know we will be reunited one day in glory, and it's only a matter of time until we cross that finish line as well. When an unbeliever dies, this is truly a sad event. As Christians, we truly mourn for them because we know where they have gone. They have not gone to a better place. Unlike the Christian's death, there is no hope for them. And we still mourn for the loss we experience, but we also mourn for a soul that has passed from this world, the closest they have ever got to heaven, to a place far worse than here. It is in these times that Christians sometimes really feel regret. Could I have shared the gospel one more time? Could I have prayed more diligently for them to come to know Christ? What else could I have done? Some very unsettling thoughts linger over the funeral of an unregenerate person. We are forever separated. We will never meet again. You are forever lost. This is the finality of death. This is the sting of death. Death truly is our enemy. Although humankind fears physical death, they seem to have no fear of a greater death that is much worse in scope and power than a mere physical one. There remains another death other than our appointed physical one. It is the death that occurs for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. This is the real enemy of humankind. This kind of death eternally separates us from God. You know people believe that they are currently separated from god that god is in heaven above and we are on earth below and that somehow he looks down and observes our behavior rather passively sometimes prayer might encourage god to take notice of a special issue and then if he's not too busy he may act this basic error has led to other deeper errors in thinking If God is far off, then maybe he cannot see everything. If God is out there somewhere, then I am doing everything on my own without his help. Therefore, I do not need God. If God is out there far off, then he doesn't care about all the suffering that I experience. But the truth is that God is right here, right now. He has always been present here on earth, and there hasn't been a place or a moment of time where God has not been present. He has been present our entire lives, from the good things to the bad things. He has been there in the moments of joy, such as marriages and the birth of a child, and he has been there in the moments of abject grief as well. Apart from our own experiences, God has been present by the larger global moments of happiness and joy, as well as the unseen horrors of war. In all that transpires, God is present. And he is not just a spectator at these events. He is the life that animates all living creatures. He is the great architect of all history, coordinating all events until his will is accomplished. He is the staying power of restraint that keeps evil in check. If Satan and his angels are under the power and restraint of God, What makes us think that mankind is any different? Proverbs 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. One can only imagine a world where God's restraint of evil goes unchecked. Where mankind only thinks of evil things all the time. Brethren, this is exactly what the second death is. As difficult a concept as it is, the second death sends its victims to a place where God chooses not to be. It is a place where the sanity of God's restraint and order-keeping influence are no longer in place. It is exactly what many unregenerate want of God on this side of eternity. They want nothing of his holiness or his law. They want nothing to do with his son, Jesus Christ. They wish they practically demand that God would just leave them alone. And this is exactly what God gives them. God gives them the desire of their hearts to be in a place where God is not, and they have no idea what they are asking. A Christless eternity is an eternity devoid of reason and sense. Jesus keeps our physical world in control and in sync, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. What would keep this place in balance and check if he is not here? How is it that the planets of our solar system do not collide, but rather circle the sun continually in their orbits? How is it that our tiny little ball of earth and water doesn't plummet from our orbit and be burned up by the sun? Or freeze if we move too far away? What keeps our countries from rising up and destroying each other on a global scale? What keeps your neighbor from murdering you and taking your possessions? There certainly is enough hatred of our fellow man to spur this action. What keeps your white blood cells fighting off infection? Why do yours continue to do that even right now as you sit here in the pew, but others are right now defenseless due to a breakdown of their immune system? On both monumental and minuscule scales, God is active in keeping you alive. We take God and his continual work with his creation For granted, we say he's distant when he is intimately involved with everyone, saint and sinner alike. The reality is that we cannot fathom a Christless eternity. All we have ever known is a universe saturated with God's intimate interaction. All we can do is speculate on the absolute horrific nature of a place devoid of this control of God. That is where those who experience the second death will go. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus Christ has saved his people from this horrific second death. All people die, Christian and non-Christian alike. No one escapes the first death. In John 10, 10 Jesus said that he came that we would have life and have it more abundantly. It is his salvation from the second death that he was referencing. His people will never taste death again. They will never ever know a time where they are apart from the presence of God. They will always be with Him and live in a world made sane by God Himself. In fact, in glory, we gain so much more than we can ever imagine. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. As much as we cannot fathom a Christless existence, we also cannot fathom an existence apart from the effects of sin. We, We have no bearing for that. As unavoidable as our physical death is, this more permanent death is avoidable. Jesus Christ is our champion when dealing with death what is a champion a champion takes up the cause of the powerless and fights the battle in their stead Christ was like us in every way except that he was sinless now if he was sinless he would never have died right yes in fact he says so John 10 17 and 18 for this reason the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus lived an absolutely spotless life before God, and therefore was the only one who ever died who didn't deserve to die. We often overvalue our perceived innocence. We will often say about someone who passed away at a youngish age that they went before their time, or maybe that they were a good person, and why would God allow them to be taken so quickly? On that concept, let me say that if that person was a child of God, going home to be with him at a young age is a mercy and not a bad thing whatsoever. But regarding God taking a person at the wrong time because of how innocent or young they may have been, demonstrates a lack of knowledge of who we actually are as a people. Remember, we are all sinners that deserve the most devastating judgment from holy God. We have broken covenant with him. We have not done as he commanded, or we have done what he has told us not to do in our unregenerate ways. We have demonstrated not a heartfelt remorse over our sin, but rather an overtly smug defiance. We have not cared what he has decreed or valued his law. We have not cared that he is holy and he has commanded us to be likewise. We have not cared about the fact that we are irrevocably his creations and that we have never been freely ourselves. We have enjoyed our wickedness and we would gladly wallow in it. And somehow we believe that God either does not see who it is that we really are or he doesn't care. Brethren, we are this broken, we are this tainted, we are this ugly and repulsive in our sin. Every human being is in this state. We do not grow into wickedness. Rather, we are wicked by our very nature. We look good if we compare ourselves to one another. I've heard it said, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Yes, You are. As an unsaved sinner, there will be no distinction for you if you die without Christ. You and Hitler will share the same fate. Hell. Well, no one's perfect. God is. And he compares us to his perfect standard, not to each other. And when we're compared to that standard, we fall way short If we have even the slightest understanding of this concept, then we must understand that no one dies before their time, but rather all of us have been given grace by God that we have even lived at all. The question should not be, why did God take my loved one so early or so young, but rather why have I been allowed to live? We don't see our sin as being that bad when in fact it is so much worse than we can imagine. Now I reiterate that Jesus Christ is the only person to have died undeservedly. He was fully human and fully God at the same time. And his mission on earth was threefold. He revealed his father. He fulfilled the law by living a perfectly holy life. And he substitutionally paid the price for his people's sin. He collected the wages of their sin, not his own. You know, we are incensed as a public when someone is published for something they did not do. Occasionally, we hear about new evidence that clears someone of a crime of which they were convicted, some being in prison for 30-some years. We are outraged that that person has lost a portion of their life paying for something they didn't do. Is this true of Christ? Christ's innocence has never been in doubt. Pilate found no fault in him either. Matthew 27 verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves, to which they responded, let his blood be on us and our children. We know of his innocence, and as he is being beaten, scourged, mocked, and crucified, Yet instead of being outraged at this unfair exchange we stand in appreciative approval of what transpires. Our champion is fighting the battle. If we are to have any hope of having peace with God, Jesus must die. Our own deaths are not enough to satiate the wrath of God. So great is our debt to God over what we have done through our sin that our meager death, though it cost all that we have, is too small a payment. And that's why the second death exists. The Bible gives us a picture of just how much our sin's debt really is. In Matthew 18, verses 23 and following, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. A talent was an ancient unit of measurement for precious metals. Each talent weighed 75 pounds. Imagine a talent of 75 pounds of gold. In this parable, the servant owed 10,000 talents that would be 750,000 pounds of gold. That is why his whole family is to be sold to pay back the debt. And it is out of mercy, not out of a contract when the servant says, I'll pay you back. It is out of mercy and pity that the king forgives the debt completely. Can you imagine owing that much money to a bank? Do you think that they would be as forgiving? This is an allegory of the debt each one of us has accumulated. Certainly the substitutionary death of one man could not redeem the debts of countless Christians throughout the ages. That statement would be true if Jesus were just a man. But Jesus is much more than just a man. He is God himself. Can you ascertain the value of God's life? How many human lives is worth the life of God? How many lives of creatures equal the life of the creator? How many borrowed breaths of life equal the source of all life? We think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The life of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, was priceless. It more than covered all the debts that we owed. Seeing that no one could pay the immense debt that sin has accumulated, we needed someone to come and pay that debt for us someone whose riches far exceeded our needs and jesus has done exactly that he has satisfied the outstanding balance that sin has against us our bill is marked paid in full and by doing so he has negated the second death as well Christ, our champion, has secured our status within his kingdom. Death no longer has a grip of fear on us. Do you know that this has always been the plan of God? God is not reactionary so that he needs to come up with a plan on the spot to deal with our weird and inconsistent lives. Listen to God reveal his plan for the defeat of death way back in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Concerning the future fulfillment of this passage, Paul says under inspiration in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 and following, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What can we learn from our study of our last enemy this morning? First, although we have dealt with this unavoidable date with our enemy, we must also remember that it is a necessary part of our existence. If, as we began this morning, we understand that we have this appointment that is made for us by God himself, then it must have purpose, and it is not senseless, as we hear that term applied to deaths, or meaningless What are those purposes? The hymn writer penned these words. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives and death is now but my entrance into glory. Courage, then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Thou shalt find thy hopes were just. Jesus is the Christian's trust. Also, do you know that God himself has a perspective on the death of his people? Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God desires his people to be with him he wants his children to come home and so he calls them home in his good pleasure to be with him this is part of his purpose for death we read part of first corinthians 15 earlier but let's back up a bit and read some more first corinthians 15 now starting with verse 50 i tell you this brothers For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, brethren, these bodies that we now inhabit were not designed to be forever with God. We need a glorified body like Christ's. Therefore, part of the purpose of death is to make us ready for the age to come. Secondly, I believe that understanding that God indeed has purpose wrapped in this most uncomfortable process of death should help us as Christians lose our fear of it. Job said in chapter 13, verse 15, that though he slay me, I will hope in him. I take great comfort that this part of my existence, as with all of my existence, is controlled and handled by God Almighty. If it were anyone else, I would have great and justifiable fear. Earlier I mentioned that we all face death alone and that no one can come along and say that they can help us because they've been through it and know what to expect. That was only partly true. No other person can say this except for Jesus Christ. Jesus has indeed been through the process of death. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In much the same way, Jesus has experienced death. He is able to help those who are dying. If, as we have stated today, God is indeed everywhere, then we do not go through death alone. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Thirdly, I believe we should look more to our conquering king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and praise him for what he has done. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 21, verse 8. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in this book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. Lastly, I believe we need to look forward to the proper thing following our death. It is true that all of these saints who have passed before us will be there in glory. And I do want to be reunited with all of my loved ones and friends. But the first person I want to see is my Savior, my champion, my King, Jesus Christ. Should my parents precede me in death... I will still want to see Jesus first, should my children pass before I do, I will still want to see Jesus first, should my dear wife, whom I love more. And any other being on this planet that's before I do I went to see Christ first in fact as cold as this may sound I could just be with Jesus and see no other loved one and it would be alright all, right. all of the previous relationships that we have experienced on earth will be no more The only relationship that still exists in heaven is the one between redeemed sinner and wonderful Savior. The heart of the Christian longs to be with Christ. Another hymn writer states The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory. But on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Is this your hope today? Do you want to be with Christ? Or do you fear death because you're unsure of where you'd spend eternity? Maybe you know exactly where you'd spend eternity and it frightens you. You know, if that's the case, it's a good thing. It means you realize that there's a problem between you and God, and that problem is your sin. We have discussed today, you cannot reconcile yourself to him, but God can reconcile you to himself. Romans 5, 6 through 11, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but god shows his love for us that while we were still sinners christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of god for if we were enemies for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Call on him to forgive you, and do it right now. We are not owed our next breath. God is able and willing to forgive. When your eyes eventually close in death, instead of waking to judgment, wrath, and eternal separation from God, they will open to a loving Savior who will gently wipe away your every tear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your work. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the gift of life. We are thankful that our deaths are appointed and handled by you. We are thankful that they are just an entrance from, from this world into the next. We ask, Lord, that by your spiritual work in the hearts of your people here this morning, Lord, to bring about change. Help us to think long and hard about our eventual leaving this world. And I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, that today might be the day, Lord, that you miraculously bring them to life by your spirit. We thank you that you are still operating in the world today. We thank you for the fact that you still control all things and that all things hold together by you. We give you praise for that, Lord. We ask your blessing upon our time today. In Jesus' name, amen.